Uh, because James gives us this warning, don't merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. I want, to, I want you to think about where do, you, where do you see Christians today, maybe Christians out there, maybe Christians yourself, where do you see Christians today that know what the truth is in the Bible but neglect to do it? Where do you see it? Have a think about it. And I want you to maybe share with the person who's next to you. Where do you see Christians who know what the truth is but fail to do it? Have a, have a think and chat with the person who's close to you. What ideas have you come up with? Where do you see Christians who know what the right thing is but neglect to do it? I heard someone said earlier, on the road, it's pretty easy there, isn't it? We know the road rules are there for our benefit to keep us safe, to keep other people safe. We know that we should respect our authorities who tell us to drive at 60, and yet often Christians fail to do the right thing there. Where else? Did you think of some other examples? The House of Bishops? Well, yes. Uh, there was a famous example, isn't there, that we've seen recently in the Anglican Church of Australia that, uh, what do we see? 13 bishops didn't vote to uphold the truth of God's word. They knew what it said and they don't disagree with what it says. This is, this is, there's no misunderstanding about it. And yet they don't want to act in accordance with what God's word says, uh, particularly in relation to marriage being between one man and one woman. Uh, other ideas? Where, have you, where do you think Christians today know the right thing but don't follow through? Joe? Yeah, so there's, there's, there's kind of two things going on there, isn't there? There's a point where uh, people aren't following government directives uh, that uh, some, people, some people would say that well, there's clear, uh, clear evidence the Bible says to follow the, the leader's instructions. Uh, it's, it's, there are some complicating things around our vaccination status thing when they, they did allow people to have conscientious objection. But, but there's, a, there's a bigger thing there, isn't there, that, that when you hold a position so tightly that you start abusing other people. That, that you're so strongly excited about something that it leads you to be unkind or unloving or hurtful. Yes. Yep. It's uh, Yes. Uh, it's easy for us to, for Christians to be hypocritical in lots of ways, isn't it? Uh, we, we take things that we like don't follow through always with things that are less easy and uncomfortable. Yeah, Maureen, you've got another one? Yes. That's a very, very good example, isn't it? We know the message of the gospel. We know that without Jesus, without trusting in Jesus, people remain as God's enemies. People are on the pathway to hell. And yet we don't always speak up to remind people, to invite them to find hope and salvation and eternal life in Jesus. 
We know we should, but we don't always do it. If you think, and maybe there was lots more things you discussed in that time, but if you sit down and think, there's just there's lots of places where this, this is a reality, where we know what we should do, but we find it hard to act. And this is the, this is the attitude that James is addressing in his letter. Again and again, we see this come out throughout uh, the five chapters. We see him addressing things that Christians should know what to do. And yet it seems that too often they're not following through. It's a book, book that's very practical. It's focused on action. And so as we read it, you'll hear lots of instructions, lots of imperatives, commands. Do this, don't do this. Uh, which is, is, for some people, it can be, they can find that difficult. Uh, but for others, that can be really helpful because it shows us exactly where the things we believe about God, where that intersects with different parts of our lives. And so today we're starting in chapter 1 that Ian read, read for us earlier. And let me just start by saying, I think verse 1, James chapter 1 verse 1, is one of the most remarkable verses in the Bible. It's one of those starts to a letter, we get lots of them. But did you notice as we were reading it, what it said uh, here? Here we go. James chapter 1. Why did I stop going? Here we go. Verse 1, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. Now, that sounds kind of normal. It's similar to the way Paul starts his letters. Why is this remarkable? Well, it's because of who James is. James is Jesus' brother. Now, how many of you have brothers? Few people, how many? How many of you would call yourself a servant of your brother? Who would be willing to take on that role? I tell you, I wouldn't. That's not something that I'd sign up to willingly uh, to describe myself as the servant of my brother. But James here calls himself just that—a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. He's not just a servant of his brother, but he's a servant of his brother who's the Lord, the promised Messiah. That's a big call. That's the, the one that you grew up with, that had every opportunity to be there pressing your buttons in the back of the car, saying the things that they knew would get a reaction. If anyone would have reasons to know Jesus inside out, to reasons to not believe that he was the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Surely it's someone who saw him through his teenage years, who saw him when he was 14. Surely James, of all people, would be the last one to be won over to the fact that Jesus is the Lord, and yet he is. Yeah, we have it here. James, no hesitations, the servant of the Lord Jesus Christ. And he writes this letter to encourage people, particularly to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. What does this tell us? He's writing primarily 
with Jews in mind. James was a leader of the church in Jerusalem in the early days. And he's writing to Jews, the 12 tribes. I think there's no, we could imagine that that's referring to the metaphorical 12 tribes that are now people from all nations, but I don't think we need to. We should kind of just take it as plainly as we can. He's writing to the Jews, but to be people who live him. This is it. And so we're going to jump into the first section where he wants to address, well, before he gets to the real practical things on the ground, he wants to address some attitudes of the heart. He wants to show how totally world-transforming, upside-down news of Jesus makes us think differently about things. Thinking is an action, isn't it? It's a practical response. It may not be always what we first imagine when we think of action, but thinking in our mental attitude is part of how we respond to God's word. And so uh, James starts here and he mentions three things that kind of go together. Wrote it down. I'm going to show you. Uh, here we go. He mentions three things. Firstly, the attitude of having joy amidst trials. Secondly, the attitude of having faith, even in the position of weakness, of prayer. And lastly, the attitude of having pride in things that are invisible. Uh, They're all different attitudes that are really the opposite to the way the world thinks. And James wants this for Christians. Uh, Sorry, I should have said that although he's writing to the Jews, who are Christians throughout the world. These things are equally helpful for us to hear and understand and act on. Even if we haven't descended uh, from Abraham biologically, uh, the things he is writing about, the aspects of the Christian life, are exactly the same for us. Let's look at the first one. He wants the people to have the attitude of joy in trials. Trials are painful. They're difficult. They're frustrating. You feel futile. You can feel sadness and sorrow. Our natural reaction to trials, isn't it to complain, to whinge, to try and escape them, to see them just as totally negative when difficulties come? We think they are bad. We think good is very closely related with easy, don't we? What's right is almost interchangeable for what's most comfortable. But here, James challenges that thinking, turns it on his head. He says, consider it pure joy whenever you face trials of many kinds. Upside down thinking. Don't just see it as negative. Don't just whinge about it. Actually, consider it joy. Now, notice he doesn't say consider it happiness. There's a distinction. We mentioned a couple of weeks ago as we looked at the psalm, uh, unpacking joy. But joy is something, it's not merely a surface level as happiness. It goes deeper. 
And you can have joy even when you don't feel happy. Joy is a reaction to reality that recognises positivity in it. Even though it may not be pleasant, it may not be fun, it may not be comfortable, but joy is the disposition that recognises things are ultimately good. There's a deeper uh, there's a deeper benefit. What is that deeper benefit here? That's more valuable than potentially comfort and ease? Well, he said he explains because the testing of your faith produces perseverance. And let perseverance finish its work so you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. See, what's happening as we go through trials of many kinds, as our faith is tested, as we confront it with joy instead of whinging, it's an opportunity for us to grow. It's an opportunity for character development. Is this the kind of thing, no pain, no gain? In action? Well, a little bit. Is it the survival of the fittest? What doesn't kill you makes you stronger? Not quite. No. Persevering through the testing, through the difficulties, does lead to us growing. But we're growing towards a goal. It's not merely just growing stronger so that we'll be better equipped for next time. It's growing towards the goal of maturity, completeness, not lacking anything. There's a target we're heading towards, being perfected. Now, ultimately, we know this target will never be fully reached in this life but it will be complete when Jesus returns, when we are raised and transformed to be like him, fully and finally. And because we know that's where we're going, that's the ultimate outcome. As we see ourselves progressing towards that here and now through the difficulties we face, growing, that is a reason for us to have joy even when it's not pleasant. It's not some perverse kind of masochism that just enjoys pain. But it's an attitude that enables us to see through the unpleasantness to a deeper good. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters. That's the first thing. Joy in trials. The second upside-down attitude that James mentions here is faithfulness or faith in weakness and particularly the weak posture of prayer. The world sees strength in strength, doesn't it? (laughs) It relies on ability, competence, action, taking things into your hands. 
we often think fall into the trap of thinking that same way. That we are most strong when we are busiest, doing most, contributing most, achieving the most. But here, James challenges our attitude and wants us to think about things in an upside-down way. He writes, if any of you lacks wisdom, you should ask God who gives generously to all without finding fault, and it will be given to you. Interestingly, on our trajectory towards maturity, we need to grow in wisdom, don't we? But what is the way that we're to grow in it, even amidst the ups and downs of life? It's not just by working harder, studying harder. It's not just by suffering more. That's not going to do it on its own. No. You should ask God. You admit your weakness, your need. Don't hide it and try to cover it up. We admit it and ask God who gives generously. When we do, we can be confident of God hearing and answering us. And here James gives a special warning that when you, when you pray, when you ask, to don't, don't be doing it with two minds. Don't be ambivalent thinking, well, God, I want it. But on the other hand, I might just go out and keep trying to do it myself. I want it, but I'm actually doubting whether you're going to do it, so I need to take it into my own hands. I want to grow in wisdom. But I don't know that you'll give it to me. When you ask, James says, you must believe and not doubt because the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea, tossed and blown by the wind. That person shouldn't expect anything. They are double-minded and unstable. James wants us to be fully Embracing prayer, trusting in God's response. Now, I think one of the ways we struggle to do this or we fail to pray with faith is by failing to pray full stop, isn't it? That's one of the most common ways. We think we don't need to or... We just don't prioritize it. In our trust of God, we still think, oh, I'll just persevere and push on and get things done myself. But James calls us to pray, trusting God. From our position of weakness, to trust God, to ask for his wisdom. And we can do that because we know the giver, don't we? We know what God's like. As Paul writes in Romans, he hasn't held back his own son. Will he not graciously give us all things? We can pray for wisdom with confidence. Now, this isn't a warning against all types of doubting. We have doubts at different points, don't we? Where we have questions that arise about who God is and we 
it's right for us to, to weigh them and to work through them. We, to have questions that come onto our mind at, time, at different times. Isn't itself not to trust God. But it's what we do in those circumstances. When we have questions or maybe we're not feeling fully there, does that become an excuse to not to relate to God faithfully? If doubts stop us from praying, if they stop us from acting in faith, that's when they become problematic. Uh, like the man who responded to Jesus with this wonderful line, he said, Lord, I do believe. Help me overcome my unbelief. That's the, that's the posture of someone who still is wrestling through faith and what it means and maybe has doubts in his mind, but he's doing it in an attitude of trusting Jesus. So we can bring our prayers to God even when we have concerns or questions we're still working through. We can still express faith. Trusting in him. Well, uh, this is the, the second, second thing James addresses here. The upside down attitude of joy in trials. The upside down attitude of faith in weakness. And lastly, the upside down attitude of pride in the invisible. Or glorying, boasting in what can't be seen and held and touched. These last section here is a warning. It's a warning not to look at riches, material possessions, and the external status that we may hold because of those things. To not think that is a reflection of eternity. To not see that as a reflection of true status before God. So what does he say? Believers in humble circumstances, those who are poor, he's saying, those who have less money, they ought to take pride in their high position. What is their high position? That's not the way things look, is it? It's these are believers who he's previously addressed as brothers and sisters, people who are in God's family. They ought to take pride in their high position. That they have been favoured by God. Chosen, loved, adopted. Believers who have nothing on the outside to recommend themselves in the world's eye. They have God's favour. Believers who are poor ought to glory in that. They ought to turn their attitude towards their status that cannot be seen externally. And so at the other end of the spectrum, those believers who are rich also 
ought to look not at their external status of wealth, but they should take pride in their humiliation. They should glory in the things that bring them down. What is the things that bring them down? Well, he goes on to explain. It's it's death, isn't it? Since the rich will pass away like a wild flower, the sun rises with scorching heat, withers the plant and its blossom falls and its beauty is destroyed. In the same way, the rich will fade away even while they go about their business. This is their downfall. And the rich are to take pride in that, to glory in the fact that their material things are only here for a temporary period. And that they will pass through their hands and life itself will fade away. They're to take pride to glory in what cannot be seen. They themselves need to look not at this external status, but they need to be looking towards eternity, to their status also as members of God's family. What's going to endure into eternity? This is a challenge to our thinking, to the way the world thinks, isn't it? Because the world and we, we just look at each other from the outside. We see the external markers so clearly. And even as we look at ourselves, those things can loom so large, can't they? How much money we have. How well we're regarded by other people. How much we have achieved in our life. It's easy to fall into the trap of seeing our value in relation to those things. Whether it's good or bad, whether it's much or little. James says, turn your thinking upside down, have the opposite attitude to the world, and look at that eternal reality to take pride in the invisible status, who you are in God. We cannot have the same attitude to money and wealth as those who don't know Jesus have, can we? just doesn't make sense. It's not all that there is. This life isn't everything we've got. We live in light of eternity, in light of the invisible. James finishes this section by going back where he started. Blessed is the one who perseveres under trial. Because having stood the test, the person will receive the crown of life the Lord has promised to those who love him. This is the hope that we have, isn't it? At the end of the day, when the trials have passed, when we have grown in maturity and finally been made perfect, when we don't need to pray in our state of weakness, but we'll be able to see the Lord face to face. And when all the external trappings have fallen away, that we will have something valuable 
that endures on. The crown of life, James calls it. He wants, so he wants us to persevere, to keep going with these upside-down attitudes in the here and now. That's who we are, isn't it? And friends, if you are wrestling with this, if you don't know, if you don't know how to do this, maybe if you're thinking these upside-down things, ways of thinking don't make sense, then maybe it's because you haven't come to grips with this ultimate reality that underlies all of who we are before God. And if we want to know that, we need to turn again and again to Jesus who reveals God and who models these very upside-down attitudes in action. Doesn't he? It was Jesus who, though he, before coming to earth, lived in the wealth and splendor of heaven. He gave it up. You know his grace. That though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you through his poverty might become rich. You know, he was one who prayed continually. He was always turning again to pray. And he prayed not because... couldn't have acted. Not because even God needed to understand what was going on. God sees it all. He prayed as an expression of that full wholehearted trust. And he taught his disciples to pray. Your father knows what you need before you ask him. You can pray in faith to this one. We know Jesus, who knew what it was to go through trials. He suffered at the hands of the very people he came to save. And for the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. It wasn't fun and it wasn't easy, it wasn't comfortable but it was something that brought him joy. As he was dying for our sins, he was achieving our salvation. Friends, please, I want you to be people who, who act, who put this reality into into day-to-day life. But it has to start with knowing this reality, doesn't it? We don't want to fall into the trap of legalism, of just going about, there's just all these things we need to do. No, the doing flows out of the listening, hearing God's word, of seeing the truth of the gospel, understanding what he's done. It is because Jesus has saved us, has brought us into God's family. Because Jesus has turned everything upside down for us, that we can now look at life with these upside down attitudes and live accordingly. Let me pray for us. Let it be so. Lord God, thank you for 
speaking to us in your word. Thank you for showing us the life-changing message of Jesus, what he has done for us in dying and rising again. Please help us to be transformed as we understand this, all of us. And please help us to see the world anew as you see it, to be able to respond, not as the world responds, but according with the reality of who we are in your sight, in Christ. We pray that you would bear this out in our lives, that we might be people who just listen, but that we would be people who are changed, shaped, transformed, and that we live in light of this upside-down reality. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, uh, 